This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. This morning's scripture comes from Philippians. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. This is God's word. Please be seated. In case you weren't here last week, we're taking a short break from the Old Testament book of Exodus in order to study the New Testament book of Philippians. And last week I preached on verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, and I introduced our tagline uh, for this series, the three phrases um, that we're going to come back to over and over and over as we walk through Philippians. Do nothing, uh, gain everything, give anything. It's a summary of the gospel. It's a summary of Christianity. It's a summary uh, for followers of believers in direct contrast to every other uh, world religion, present or historic, in direct contrast. In Jesus, we do nothing. We, We do not in any way merit or achieve or earn salvation, past, present, or future. And then we gain everything. In the saving work of Jesus, anything worth having in this life and the next is ours by grace. And in response, we increasingly give anything King Jesus uh, asks for from us. This is the message of the Bible. In fact, if you were to read through the gospel narratives, if you were to watch people interact with Jesus, you would see this pattern over and over and over. Luke 8, this week in City Bible Reading, we're told that as Jesus traveled in his ministry, Some women also went with him and they served him and they provided for him out of their means. But before they gave him anything, he healed and delivered them spiritually and physically. They did nothing. They gained everything. And so they gave anything. That was last week's sermon. The six words, this tagline, this phrase, this picture if you will, will be something we reference over and over in the coming weeks as we walk through Philippians. We'll talk about it in some measure again today. So this week, we're going to study uh, verses 3 through 11 of chapter 1. And to get us started, uh, in a previous life, uh, I was a student pastor. I was the pastor of middle school and high school students. And it was not uncommon for parents to schedule an appointment uh, with me. Uh, a year or more after their student had graduated from high school. They would come into the office and we would sort of endure some mindless chit-chat and eventually uh, the parents would get down to business. And the bottom line was this. 
They had discovered that their child was living deceptively, that their child was living recklessly and rebelliously. Their child was beginning to question and doubt the biblical truths they'd been taught for years. It had been a while since their child had darkened the door of a church, a while since their child had lived in gospel community. Oftentimes, their child was doing the unthinkable to them, and they were dating an unbeliever. And the parent began to ask me questions. What does this mean for them? Where do they stand with Jesus and the gospel? Where do they stand in relation to heaven and hell? Are they still Christians? Are they backsliding? Are they apostate? Do you have any idea? And sometimes the parents, a little more theologically aware, would ask, how genuine was my child in past conversations you had with them about spiritual things? When they went to camp and they made a decision for Jesus, is it possible for you to tell me how sincere they were? Was it real? Does it last? Do you know? And essentially, the parents wanted to know my take on the eternal destiny of their child's soul. And truth be told, they understandably and desperately wanted me to show them in the Bible that their child was going to be okay they were going to make it. Similarly, much more soberly, one of the most awkward and confusing and difficult and tempting situations we have in our lives is being part of a funeral for someone who, when they died, was not obviously walking with Jesus. Again, in a previous life, I was occasionally asked to help lead in funerals for members' parents or grandparents, someone I did not know at all, someone who was not obviously walking with the Lord when they died. And even if they lived what seemed to be a Christian life up to that day, it was awkward and confusing, tempting and difficult. And whether it's a parent asking me about their wayward child or uh, us thinking about those times where we have seen someone's life come to an end and they're not uh, obviously walking with Jesus, we're tempted because we desperately want to tell them what they want to hear, even if we have no biblical ground or right to do so. In these conversations, the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints inevitably comes up. Our text this morning teaches an awful lot about perseverance, and it sheds a lot of light on these conversations. So we're going to study verses 3 through 11 this way. The doctrine of perseverance, the evidence of the doctrine, and the power for the evidence. The doctrine of perseverance, the evidence of the doctrine, and the power for the evidence. So we'll begin. The doctrine of perseverance. If you have your worship folder or your Bible, you'll want to turn to the text now. The doctrine of perseverance is this, verse six, that when God begins a good work in a person, he will bring that good work to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That if God gives spiritual sight to someone, if God gives new life, new spiritual life to someone, if God regenerates someone or causes them to be born again, if God gives the gifts of of genuine repentance and faith, God will continue his work in that person, bit by bit, in their life, and God will, at Jesus' return, complete or accomplish or finish his work. 
Verse six, when God begins a good work in someone, he will bring it, he will continue it. He will bring it to completion. That person who God regenerates or gives new life to cannot be lost. They cannot fall away from grace in any total sense. They cannot lose their salvation regardless of what they do. Do nothing, gain everything. In the ultimate sense, God does it all. The doctrine of perseverance is based on the character and the will of God. Paul does not say, think about what he does not say. He says, he he does not say, I'm sure of this. You can do it. I'm certain that you can make it. Just believe in yourself. Paul says to the Philippians, God can do it. He will make you make it. Jesus says in John chapter six, it is the father's will that I should lose nothing of all that he has given to me. The will of the father is this, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should should have eternal life. The one who believes, the one who has faith, Jesus promises, I will raise him up on the last day. In John chapter 10, Jesus says, I give my sheep eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Further, my father who has given the sheep to me, he is greater than I, he is stronger than I. No one is able to snatch the sheep from my father's hand. The doctrine of perseverance is not primarily you holding on to God, but God holding on to you. Do nothing gain everything. Not gain something, gain everything. Start to finish. It's not do nothing, gain something, do something, gain everything else. I was talking to a friend this week and he was describing the success of another friend and he said this about his friend, which is by the way a compliment among men. He, he said he's like a bulldog or a pit bull. I can't remember which one he says. He said once he latches onto an idea or a vision, he never lets it go. The same can be said of God saving his children, saving his sheep, saving his saints. Once he starts truly saving, he will surely save to the uttermost. So with this in mind, think about verses three through five for just a second. Verse three, whenever I think of you or whenever someone mentions you, I thank God. Verse four, every time I make any prayer for you, I pray with joy and gladness. Verse five, and he says, this is why, because of your partnership in, your fellowship in, your support of my gospel ministry from the first day we met until now. Paul tells the Philippians, he says, I've written so many thank you notes through the years, I can't even begin to describe them. They happen all the time. He says, I've written so many thank you notes for your generosity and for your sacrificial support and your love of me and my ministry. But who is the recipient of the thank you notes? Who does Paul thank every time he thinks of the Philippians? Not the Philippians, God. He thanks God. Why? Because God ultimately started the work. He continues the work. He completes the work. Paul will give them a small T, thank you. But he gives God a capital T, thank you, when he thinks of them. 
You can see Paul's assumption of the perseverance of the saints in verses 9 through 11, the persevering work of God. In verses 3 through 5, uh, Paul talks about how often he prays and how he prays and why he prays. But in 9 through 11, Paul actually records what he prays. It's a prayer for perseverance. Paul paints the picture of what it looks like for, the, for, for God's good work to be brought to completion. Paul prays that in their lives in the future, they will abound more and more in love, verse 9, that they will increase in knowledge and discernment and the ability to approve what is excellent. And that at the day of Christ, again, when Christ returns, he prays that they would be found pure and blameless. It's a prayer for perseverance, for continued growth, uh, for continued growth unto completion. But don't miss the big point. It's not a command to the Philippians to do these things. It's a prayer for God, to God, for God to do these things. Why? Because Paul understood and believed and taught the doctrine of perseverance that God continues and completes what he starts and Paul is praying for exactly that. So that's the doctrine of perseverance, that a genuine Christian will continue on because God continues them, that the true believer will carry on because God carries them, that the true believer will never be lost because Jesus lost nothing that was given to him by the Father that those who are truly born again will complete the pilgrimage because God completes them. But second, let's consider the evidence of the doctrine. And this is where it gets a little hard. Let me get into it this way. Can we know who is being persevered? Can we know who was persevered, if you will, and how can we know? Or said differently, about whom was verse 6 true and applicable? Is anyone and everyone brought to completion by God? What's the criteria for knowing that God is persevering? <laughs> is the criteria simply reading verse 6 at some point in your life? Is it memorizing verse 6 in children's church? Is it a theoretical, theological understanding of verse 6? Is the criteria parents believing verse 6 about a child who is off at college? How can we know with joy and gladness that verse six is true and applicable to us? Let's look at the text. Let's see what Paul says. Who does he apply this verse to? Look back at verse six. And I am sure of this. In the Greek, it's something like this. I've been thinking about this. It's something like this. I'm persuaded of this. It's, it's something like this. I've been brought to a place of believing this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Keep going in verse seven. It is right or correct for me to feel or think this way about you all. You all is the church in Philippi around 61 AD. Paul did not write this verse in a vacuum. He wrote it to particular people. Paul knows that what he says in verse six is off the charts and so he defends what he said about particular people. He says, in, eff, in essence, uh, that, that there's evidence of God's work in you. Verse 5, for 10 plus year now, years now, we've been partnering in gospel ministry. 
We know from the book of Acts and Paul's other letters that this church in Macedonia was Paul's first church plant in Europe, Acts 16, that Paul had visited and spent time with them on numerous occasions, that Paul would regularly send them letters and they would send him support and friendship and prayer and money. And we know this is a mature and loyal and faithful and fruitful church. And what's my point? We don't have the right to just take verse six, cross-stitch it, frame it, and put it on a wall. We don't have the right to take verse six and write it on a three-by-five card and place it in our Bibles and get it out and use it and apply it in whatever situation will make us feel better. Verse six is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. If we're gonna put verse six on the wall, we have to put verse seven, five, and eight on the wall with it. The in you of verse six is utterly crucial for two reasons. Reason one, the you is a church in Philippi. Now, of course, verse six is God's word to us. It is applicable to us. It is life for us, but it is life in the context of the other words he wrote around it. Let me clarify my point. The church in Galatia, to whom Paul wrote Galatians, they were not doing very well. They were not remaining faithful. They were not bearing fruit. They were not evidently, uh, I'll say it this way, there was not evidently much evidence in them that God was truly at work in them. Or maybe you should say it like this, whatever Paul saw in them didn't compare to what he saw in Philippi because he didn't say anything like, I've been thinking about this and I'm sure that God's gonna finish the work he started in you. In fact, he said this in chapter three, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? You started out so well, what happened to you? In chapter four, Paul says, I'm afraid that I may have labored in vain over you. In chapter four, Paul says, I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. I'm perplexed about you. Paul was wishing that emoticons had been invented by now. Colon, close parenthesis, smiley face. Colon, opening parenthesis, frown. I want you to see how serious I am about this. Paul says, when God perseveres us, there is evidence of such in our lives. Our confidence is in him, but the evidence is in us. Our confidence is in him, but the evidence is in us. I said the in you of verse six is crucial for at least two reasons. Not only is the you the Philippians and not the Galatians, for example, but the in you is important because he says God is working in you. And I've been seeing it and watching it and enjoying it for 10 plus years. Paul does not say, he who began a good work for you will bring it to completion. He does not say, he who started a good work about you will bring it to completion. He doesn't say, he who inaugurated a good work in your file in heaven will bring it to completion. He says, in you. God is working in you and there's evidence of that. So I have confidence in God that God will finish that work. The evidence of perseverance is not the theological understanding of what God does for us in justification. It's the fruit of what God does in us in sanctification. Right now, friend, please stop thinking about anyone other than yourself. 
This is not about your friend. This is not about your relative. This is not about your relative's friend. This is not about your friend's relative. If you're married, this is not about your spouse. If you're married, this is about your spouse's spouse. This is about us, you and me. Is there evidence right now of the powerful work of God in our lives? Do we have any reason to take any comfort from verse six? At this point, is there any evidence that we should be confident that God will finish his work in us? And you may say, Ted, why are you hitting this so hard? Why do you repeat this so often? Didn't we cover this in Proverbs? Didn't we cover this in James? Didn't, didn't we cover this in Mark? Uh, didn't we cover this in every book you've, t- you've taught through so far? Why do you keep bringing this up? Look for fruit, look for fruit, look for evidence, look for evidence, look for proof. Why? Why can't you be just a little bit more like Joel Osteen? Why so hard? I'll tell you why. Because we're not poor. Because we don't live in a country where we're mocked and persecuted for being Christians. Because we don't live in a city where you have to go outside the gates to worship. Because we don't live in a context where being a believer is a commitment to downward mobility. We live in a city where being a believer means upward mobility. That's why. Because the Bible tells us if we benefit culturally and socially and financially from being a Christian, we better ask ourselves often, is there proof that I'm a Christian? If I was preaching in Toronto, I would rarely bring this up. But when you work for a Christian organization or run a Christian organization or go to a school where it behooves you to be Christian, in all those contexts, we just gotta keep asking the question, is there anything real here Or are we playing games and wearing labels to advance ourselves? Again, like sermons in the past, I'm gonna ask you to consider your life. I'm gonna describe some fruit or some evidence or some proof and it's mentioned and it's assumed in our text and I'm gonna ask us all not to reflect on someone else, past or present, but to reflect on ourselves. But then I am gonna invite you, I want you to live in community. I want you to go and invite others into your life to report in on what they see in you. Not what you see in other people together, but what they see in you. And the question is this, do you right now, currently today, see fruit increasing in my life? Paul says in verse five, from the first day, speaking of when he preached uh, in Acts 16, until now, present, active, increasing fruit. First question for evidence. Are we more sacrificially generous today than we were last year, let's say? Commentators agree that when Paul calls the Philippians his partners in or partakers of his apostolic ministry, he is referencing their financial contributions to him through the years. Paul talks about this church and the other churches in Macedonia and 2 Corinthians 8, where he says that they gave with a wealth of generosity, even in the midst of a severe test of affliction and poverty. Paul's saying, I see incredible generosity in you, and this is how I know God's at work in you, because you're being so generous. The Bible does not define generosity this way, rich people giving a lot. The Bible says generosity is this, a poor person giving what they have. 
Generosity is an old widow giving her last two pennies, literally giving her life. She could have given nothing and no one would have blamed her. She could have given one penny, 50% of her assets, and we would have marveled. She gave it all, and Jesus marveled. Are we more sacrificially generous than we were a year ago? This would be evidence of the gospel at work in us. Second, is my life, is your life increasingly characterized by brotherly love? Paul's prayer for perseverance, look back down at verse nine. It's my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Biblical love is sacrificial. It's expensive. The definition of love in the Bible is this. Is this. It's out of concern for you. I decrease so that you can increase. I die so that you can live. That's what the Bible means by love. Very simple. Are our lives decreasing? Are others increasing at our decrease? Are we less selfish? Are we less self-promoting? Are we more other-centered? Third, are we more in love with the Bible today than we were a year ago? Keep going in verse nine. That your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. This word for knowledge comes up 20 times in the New Testament every time it refers to the things of God. Discernment is knowing how to apply knowledge to life. Paul is praying that the Philippians would become more knowledgeable of the things of God, more knowledgeable of the Bible, and that their life would line up with the knowledge that they've gained, that they would live more biblical lives. Is our appetite for God's word increasing? Do we read it more? Do we love it more? Do we find more life in it? Fourth and finally, is our life increasingly pure and blameless. End of verse 10. Of course, Paul would never assume that anyone's perfect. In fact, he says in chapter three, we'll get there in time. He says, I'm not perfect. I haven't arrived. I'm not like Jesus yet. And neither are we. But Paul does assume that that part of God's persevering work in us is an increase in purity. So it's a word for an internal reality of holiness that we would increase in blamelessness, which is an external word for not stumbling, not actually committing acts of sin. Blamelessness flows from purity. The internal gives way to the external. We just have to ask ourselves, am I more pure and blameless than a year ago? Now, now there's a great irony here, and I want you to catch this. The more we mature and the more we grow, the more convinced we'll become that we're the biggest sinner we know. The more we mature, the more we grow, the more we'll become convinced we're the biggest sinner we know. But at the same time, the more we become aware of how sinful we are, we'll commit less sins. It is at the end of Paul's life that he calls himself the chief of sinners. But it's also at the end of his life he was more mature than he ever was before. Are we convinced more than ever that we're the biggest sinner we know? Are we convinced more than ever and seeing more and more how wicked we are, but how gracious God is? And at the same time, are we seeing progress in character? Are we seeing over time God changing us, God's good work in us? Now, In conclusion, the power for the evidence, okay? The doctrine of perseverance, the evidence for the doctrine, and the power for the evidence. This is crucial, 
crucial. Let's say that even now, before you start reflecting this week, even now, before you begin to live in community, let's say you feel like me. The evidence is not what we'd like it to be. The fruit is not what we had hoped. The proof of God's work in us is not as high def as we were looking for. How do you bring about more evidence in your life? Said differently. How is more evidence produced in our lives? What is the power for the proof? Now, this is really counterintuitive. It's very paradoxical. It's very ironic. But the worst thing you can do this week is simply decide that you're going to produce more fruit. The worst thing this week is to decide that by my power, I'm going to create more evidence so the next time this topic comes up, uh, I will feel better about where I am. The fact of the matter still is this. Do nothing, gain everything, give anything. Evidence of perseverance falls under give anything. But in order to give anything at all or to, in order to give anything more, you don't focus simply at the give anything. But the primary focus of the Christian life has got to be doing nothing to gain everything. And from that will flow an increased desire and love for giving anything. In the gospel, the one who should have been persevered, who should have been held on to, the one who bore all the evidence, the one who was always loving, always discerning, always pure, this one was cast off, forsaken, not held on to. The one who always held on to the Father was let go in our place so that we can be held on to. The one who did everything at the cross got nothing so that we could do nothing and gain everything. Look at the way Paul gives the end of the text. Look at what he provides as the power for the evidence. Verse 11, his prayer is that the Philippians would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. But look at how the righteousness comes. The fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. The power for the evidence doesn't come uh, from continually focusing on the evidence, but the power for evidence comes by focusing on Jesus. That's the paradoxical, ironic, counterintuitive part. I'll illustrate it this way. My daughter, Riley, who's now eight, when she was three or four, she did pre-ballet in Lakeland. And pre-ballet is a cute word for toddlers getting into cute clothes and walking into a really, really loud room uh, with wood floors and mirrors everywhere. And pre-ballet also means this, that there's a ballerina in the room that used to be good at ballet and now she just loves toddlers, okay? I didn't mean that. That was hurtful. I apologize. I'm sure there's an exception to the rule. So the kids themselves, they don't actually do a whole lot of ballet. It's called pre-ballet. But amazingly, after 10 weeks at the recital, the kids actually did all right. Uh, shockingly well compared to how they did at the beginning of their time with the world famous or the Polk County famous Miss Rosie. So I, I watched 
that 10th week at the recital and something fascinating happened. 20 little three and four year old girls in their tutus. Miss Rosie would get right in the middle of a big circle and she would call for and she would model the behavior that she wanted. And if the girls kept their eyes on Miss Rosie, they would do incredibly well. They would enjoy her. They would gain life from her. They would imitate her. But inevitably, every now and then, a three or four-year-old would fall. They'd crumble to the ground. They'd either actually be hurt or their pride was hurt. But either way, they'd start bawling. And Miss Rosie had a rule, no parents on the really loud wood floor. So she would run over to the child and help them out. And each time it was inevitable that one by one, the three and four-year-olds would begin to migrate towards the mirrors that are all around. And they would either get distracted with their hair or their makeup or their outfit, or they would actually try and inspect their ballet moves by looking in the mirror. And eventually, as they looked into the mirror, every one of the three and four-year-olds would get, uh, they, they, they would get distracted, um, they would get disoriented, they would eventually fall down. It was like dominoes, just one after another, falling and crumbling to the ground. Every time this happened, Miss Rosie would stand up. She would go to the middle of the floor. She would yell as loud as she could, circle. The three and four-year-olds would go and they would get around her and they would look to her. And again, as they beheld her, they would imitate her. I know it's gonna sound strange considering our second point. The Bible does call us to reflect on the fruit in our lives. But the Bible invites us more frequently than that to look to Jesus, to behold him and study him and gain life from him and love him and in so doing become more like him. The answer is not this week, do something. The answer is to study long enough, do something, gain everything so we increasingly want to give anything. Paul teaches in 2 Corinthians 3, he teaches this. We are changed from one degree of glory to the next. Sounds a little bit like the study we've had today. Metamorphosis is the actual Greek word uh, that he uses, like a caterpillar to a butterfly. He, He says dramatic change over the long haul through a million changes, hard to distinguish. That's the Christian life. And he says that we are being transformed, passive verb, being transformed from the outside in. God is transforming us. But do you know what Paul says we're doing while we're being transformed? He says this, with unveiled face, so by the power of the Holy Spirit, with unveiled face, we behold the glory of God and he further defines the glory of God as the face of Christ Jesus. Now, we would be fools to not inspect our lives, but we'd be arrogant to try and change ourselves instead of running to the one who can change us. Let's pray. Jesus is a hard teaching for us to understand and get our minds around because we have to wait long enough to get to the end, and I pray that you will have done exactly that for us. I pray that we would be sobered into deep repentance over the lack of evidence we see in our lives, but I pray that our repentance would drive us to you that we would reorient ourselves on you and your face and your grace and how you did everything and you got nothing at the cross but the Father's wrath in our place. And may we so 
may we be so taken back and amazed and filled with joy and gratitude because of what you have done. May we we wake up next year finding ourselves more generous. May we, we wake up next year finding ourselves loving your word and feeding on your word. May we find ourselves next year seeing you persevering us. In the name of Jesus.